start. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have another amazing guest with me tonight. His name is Howdy Mikowski, and we're going to be talking about the nature of reality, simulation theory, and, and what ties into it is this amazing research that he's done on these world's fairs. And wait till you hear what he talks about with some of these world's fairs. I mean, they, they devise these elaborate world's fairs to maybe possibly simulate our reality and possibly affect the way we view history. And we're going to be talking about that today. Now, a little bit more about my guest. He's the author of the books, Falling for the Truth, The Power of Then Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom, and Exposing the Expositions. He began his life as a stand-up comedian and hockey coach, but began to study ancient civilizations of Egypt and Mexico in 1997. And I want to welcome him to the show. Howdy. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I am actually mostly okay i had a bizarre uh uh asthma attack this afternoon so if for some reason i take a deep breath in the middle of the show people uh, i'm fine it's just i'm coming back from the weird attack this afternoon i'm sorry i'm sorry to hear that that's that's yeah that's scary sometimes you know that can yeah it was from eating too much cayenne pepper with my food so it was really goofy oh wow so I'm you fine. Know. It's just it's just it's just in case somebody sees me take a breath and wonders what's wrong with the guy. I'm fine. It's just yeah. Um. So you started studying back in 1997, ancient civilizations of Egypt and mm. Mexico, and right. um, you what 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 got you inspired to start studying ancient civilizations and question the nature of reality? Well, um, like you said, I, I kind of had a, a normal but abnormal life, right? I mean, I had a I was a on one side, there was a fairly normal guy. I grew up as a hockey player, well-liked individual, spending his time out in the bars, drinking with his friends. And yet at the same time, I became a stand-up comedian. So I had a very odd kind of life. Um, and, and during that time, I, I'd had two, two, well, I had many traumatic experiences, but sort of the two I tend to point to is... Um, Back in 1991, my father had stolen all my money just as I was in the middle of university. And so I had this extreme, um, you know, um, loss of faith in sort of the family unit because of, of what had happened with that. And of course, uh, loss of faith in, in handling money and all sorts of things. And then a few years after that, a girlfriend that I had uh, just finished dating uh, was murdered. And these experiences were already pushing me into not trusting reality and not trusting the world from the way we had been told it was. But I, I myself wasn't doing very well. I was, I was sort of following in, falling more and more into, into depressions, more and more into difficulty at this time, and more and more into almost what, what uh, like Castaneda would call like, like a parasitic mind. Like my mind was getting very, um, I, I was not liking the person I was seeing in the mirror, if you know what I mean. And so I had had my degree in history from a Wilfrid Laurier University standard standard history degree, which I really up to that point had done not much with. And in 97, around my birthday, I was so unhappy with my life and, and how things were going. I, I was ready to kill myself. I was just ready to end, end life, but I couldn't come up with a really good way to do it that was going to be clean and not messy for anybody to, to find it, you know, and uh as I was in this sort of contemplation mood, a, a television program came on. It was a Nova documentary series on pyramid building. 
And normally I didn't watch a lot of ancient, I watched a lot of history documentaries, but I didn't watch a lot of ancient history and I didn't study much of it, but I was drawn to this documentary this night for some, just, I, I couldn't stop watching it. And when it was done, it was like, there was a light switch that had gone on inside that said, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Ancient Egypt has a secret. Those pyramids have a secret. You have to go get it. Obviously, my depression and my interest in, in uh, terminating my life ended at that point. I went to the library, got 30 books, and began uh, a pretty intense study, which I'll keep very short so you can begin asking your next question. But it moved me very quickly to seeing I can't study this like a historian. I can't study this like an archaeologist because I soon saw they, they, they were completely incorrect with their opinions. And it started moving me into learning to spend time with uh, things like a, a, a Zen monk from Korea, several Native Indian medicine men, um, a Qigong doctor from China, etc. Trying to begin understanding the ancient Egyptian mind by trying to understand sort of the um, the wisdom minds that exist in the world today. And that's that's how I started. Well, before I ask another question, this is I have to ask, like, what did you do? What did you learn from these wise men, like the, the Native Americans and the I mean, if you had to take away anything in, in a short, uh, brief, you know, like, what would you say you are? Did you learn a little bit from each one? And did, you pick, I guess you kind of pick and choose what to take away from each person or because they all sound like they'd be all so interesting to learn from. Each one was different, of course. Each one had had their own way of teaching and their own way of presenting what it is they knew and what it is they presented. I think the thing I took away the most from it, though, was the realization that real knowledge and real wisdom does still exist in the world, but you're not going to find it in, in, in books generally. You're not going to find it in workshops. You're not going to find it in seminars. You're not going to find it with somebody's poster advertised on some wall that if you come and spend $500, you can, you know, the people doing that are running, a, I've learned very quickly, the people doing that are running a business and maybe they have a couple of interesting things to say, but the ones with real wisdom are, they're living it and you have to go find them. Like, it's not like any of these people were, had any sort of advertisement business, whatever, you know, I mean, the, the Korean monk I sort of bumped into by accident, the native medicine man I was um, sent to one I was sent to by a um, another by another medicine woman who sent me to um, to Bruce on the Sutina Reserve near Calgary, and the other two Native medicine men uh, I, I tracked down myself. Um, so it, it was also this uh, kind of it was this I guess the, the number one thing I got from them was that this wisdom exists. You have to search for it yourself, and you're going to have to put in some effort and some energy. The second thing was seeing that how honest they were. They never once said anything to me to try to make me feel good unless I needed to feel good in the moment, but they were always doing things honestly. Usually I heard more about what a jerk I was and what an idiot I was and how I wasn't doing things properly more than I ever heard how great I was and how wonderful I was going to be. And I always appreciated the honesty that they shared with me. And that's one thing I sort of try to take as I into the books and into the conversations like I'm having today is uh, honoring them by being as honest as I can, even though I may be, you know, it's up to everyone to determine whether I have some rightness or truth or correctness in what I say, but at least I'm not, I'm not going to say something just because I think you want to hear it. I'm going to say what I think, what I truly feel and what I truly believe.
Well, yeah, and I think that's amazing. And the reason why I tracked you down was because I had first heard you on Sam Tripoli's show, Tinfoil Hat. Mm -hmm. And like, like you, I had an extreme interest in history. And I think depression brought me to alternative media and searching for the truths in life. When I found out my back in 2016, 2017, that my reality wasn't what I thought it was. And that started with like the Anunnaki, the story of the Anunnaki, believe it or not, because it was the ancient Sumerian, because I was interested in the history, you know, and that's why I found you is because of the history. And when I heard about these world's fairs, like it sounded so interesting. And, and the fact that they could have, you know, simulated these possibly into our reality and like, it's just all so interesting. So like, could you tell the, the audience, like, how this all started with these world's fairs and what, what do you think was going on in this time period? Well, I better just let people have sort of a quick update on things to, before where I got to that. So I had, I had spent time with these, these people we had talked about for a number of years, for four or five years, studied intensely in a lot of different areas and really did what I might call a lot of alchemic work on myself. I mean, like, you know, if I read Castaneda's books, well, I didn't just read them, I did them. Uh, I took all the exercises and actually put them into practice and everything that my teachers gave me. And I had my own breakdowns of reality, breakdowns of self, uh, you know, a massive amount of experiences. And I thought I was pretty smart. I thought I knew quite a lot in 2004 when I was starting to write my first Egypt book after I'd just been to Egypt. Uh, then in 2005, I fell in a canyon and had a death experience. Wow. And coming out of the death experience, coming out of what... Uh, really was an experience of nothingness, uh, I began to see that a whole lot of what I thought I knew, what I thought I learned, what I thought I knew about reality was, um, if not false, certainly highly skewed information. And I had to read, I had to sort of like pull the plug on everything and wonder, did I learn anything at all during this time after the experience? And I went through a good 10 years of just trying to deal with the experience of actually, you know, being at the moment of death and not dying and being back here and having shown what was shown there. And it was very difficult for the body. I went through a number of illnesses, uh, a number of sort of erratic behavior, because I came out of it on one hand, very clear. Uh, a lot of what went into my book, Falling for Truth, was written like a year after I had this death experience. It was very clear, but at the same time, was very confused. And we can talk about that later. I went through this for about 10 or 10 years or so. And then maybe about two or three years after I got married, I was starting to get a little bit more clear. My book, Falling for Truth, was just coming out. And that's 2019, January 2019, I was in Florence. And I was starting to study cathedrals. And I was studying cathedrals um, for their energetic components, seeing how they could be a machine. And this is what I was kind of down there looking at. How does the energy work? How would these buildings work? And when I came back, as I was continuing to study this, um, there was like this energy that had built up inside and I bumped into these world's fairs. And when I bumped into the world's fairs, I just realized this is a story that needed to be told. And so I didn't even start uh, researching them or even knew anything about them until 2019. Uh, and the book came out, I had the book ready in the December of that year, just before all of our current insanity started. And oddly the book does link to the insanity that, that we're dealing with. So that's, that's the story at least. So now we can go on with the questions so people before we go on doing. with that before we go on with the world's fairs i just want to yeah. get your opinion on cathedrals and pyramids because <laughs> i think they're all these these buildings and pyramids and like and i don't mean i mean to tie them together if, if you haven't tied them together but when i think of cathedrals I, I think of other structures too it makes me think of pyramids and you spent time in egypt do you think they're energy structures do you think that's what they're all for is energy made for energy or 
Uh, well, I mean, again, I thought I knew a lot about Egyptian pyramids. I thought I was an expert on, on them from the years of study and the number of times I've been in them all over the world. The more time you spend in them, the more you begin to see that they are unlike, I mean, the old ones, the oldest pyramids, the ones at Giza, at Dashur, at Abu Sir, and Teotihuacan, etc. Um, they are unlike anything we can comprehend, actually. And for all I thought I knew about them, and I mean, like, literally, I could talk to you for two hours about them straight. Just here's all the details about pyramids that will blow your mind. I would still say at the end of those two hours, I still don't know anything. Now, a cathedral, for example, uh, are, are, you, can, you can more track the energy. You can more track a bit more what they're doing. They might say they're, they're a pyramid. Uh, they're like pyramids scaled down a level or two. So I would never think one of the great cathedrals of Europe is, is uh, to me, the cathedrals of Europe are more like Egyptian temples. In fact, Chartres, if you lay Chartres out, outside of uh, Paris and you lay Luxor Temple on top of it, they're almost exact. The, the measurements of, of Luxor and Chartres are almost identical. And it's almost like the, the uh, which are probably the Knights Templar who were building these Gothic cathedrals, they were mimicking the, the temples of Egypt and, and um, Greece in just a new way. They were, they were, they were, you know, changing the form a little, or changing the the, the shape, changing the dynamics, changing the the energy patterns of what how they were doing it. But it was still based on the same principal geometry that the old temples were based on. Now, this may sound like a really basic question, so forgive me because my knowledge is very basic on this. But I I want to learn, so that's I, I just want to ask you: Are these? Do you think these are all built on ley lines? Every ancient structure, yes, is built on some sort of energetic line. You can think of them as the meridians of the earth, just like the earth has, the body has meridians. And if you know what you need to do, you put an acupuncture needle in the body, well, think of these places as the acupuncture needles of the earth. Um, and of course, all the cathedrals, if you are willing to get honest answers, and if you can go into the basement and be allowed to look around, you will see that they are all built on top of an ancient temple whether it be a temple of Diana, a temple of Isis, a temple of Apollo, it doesn't matter. There, there's, there's, there's always an old temple That's underneath it. Yeah. And so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's the space. First of all, it's the space that's been used for thousands of years that the new builders just built. They didn't even, dis, they didn't even dismantle the old temple. The old temple is still down there. It's still in the basement. It's just they built on top of it. And uh, so, so these, these points on the earth have been known for thousands of years and um, used in ways, again, for, um, we'll say working with energy, but I'm saying that, that, I mean, that's a really simple explanation for what these things are doing. I mean, even the, I live in Norway now, and Norway has hundreds of stone circles. The population here doesn't really know about them, but there's hundreds of them here. Uh, very few people go to them, which means they're still energetically clean. So when you go to them, you can still, even though they're not as, you know, they're not as strong as going to an Egyptian pyramid, because they're still clean, you can have a lot of effect on people and a lot of, a lot of, I've seen a lot of healing, I've seen a lot of really interesting experiences happen to people who've gone and just sat down in the circle, been patient, cleared their mind, and something's happened for them. So these, these sites just, they do it without you really having to do anything, more or less, you just kind of go there, sit down, shut up, and let the energy work on you.
I, I can verify with your same from another researcher, and I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, we may have heard of him. I'm not sure. His name's Michael Tellinger. He's like kind of like an Anunnaki researcher from South mm. Africa, but he also yeah. has done real research on the stone circles in South Africa. And what he's right. Is he, I mean, he does these stone circle tours where he says people have had a lot of healing from it. So he's come up with some of a, of a similar conclusion, which I think is amazing. Now, before, before we get into these uh, World's Fairs again, I think I, I, something really interesting is that I study near-death experiences on my show too. And mm. I'd just like to poke at any information I could get out of you from your near-death experience. If it was too traumatic and you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. And we can move oh, on. Fine. But I'd love to hear about it because like I, I just want to know like one of my one of my one of my things for starting this podcast was I want to know what happens as consciousness continue on when we when we die and and that's a big thing for me because like you know um I I try to wonder like what is my purpose on this earth you know what is it all just a fluke or is it a simulation or what so you know hearing about people's near-death experiences helps me draw uh, a better conclusion as to what we might be here for. And I, I don't know if a lot of the near-death experiences are, um, you know, just people making up stuff or if they're all real. And, and that's why I can differentiate from the things I hear. And so I'd like to hear, mm. you seem like a pretty genuine person. So I'd like to hear what you come up with, where, what, what happened to you and your experience. Sure. Um, I don't think there's any greater study one can do than to study death because it's the one guaranteed experience you're going to have can't can't avoid it and it's the one experience the, the community tells us the least about you would think it should be the one that they want to tell us the most about but it's 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 avoided it's pushed away it's it's like just you know buy yourself a buy yourself a plot of land to be buried in and forget about it and uh the opposite should be true it should be focus of everyday study so i you know you're i i can't have any fault with you wanting to really go and and study as much of it as you can because it's so i um i had had first a a death experience in 1999 where i saw myself die in a parallel reality so i'd had this experience first where i i realized that there were Potent millions of me's in millions of different similar realities, some of which I'm alive, some of which I'm dead, some of which I'm doing good things, some of which I'm an asshole, some of which, you know. Uh, and that was a pretty, just that in itself was a pretty shaking moment because that was, I mean, that was like two years into my study, right? I started in 97 with this work. So that's two years in and all of a sudden I have this very clear realization that there's not just one of me having this experience there's millions of me's and that really hits your self-importance <laughs> quite a bit when you realize uh yeah but the death experience uh the, the big one when that happened in 2005 i was i was hiking in a in a canyon with a friend uh near one of canada's largest waterfalls i didn't know it was a large waterfall i'd never been there before we just we just we were we were actually going that day to hike um a uh, place called Egypt, Egypt Lake. Uh, there's a whole lot of these Egypt named mountains and uh, lakes in a small area around Canmore in, in Alberta, which I felt had a, was one of these places that ancient Egyptian priests had probably been to, similar to like the Grand Canyon, right? How well they have all these Egyptian names. It's not by accident. 
but we couldn't get there. It was filled with snow. Like it was just packed. We couldn't take more than two steps. So we went back to this place called Johnson Canyon, which, which had no snow and was no problem. And I'd never been there. I'd heard of it. Uh, we walked and we got to an area of what I thought was just a really good running river in the canyon. And we, both, we went down and we sat and we, we kind of just had a nice little meditation and quiet moment with the water, not seeing any danger because I had no idea what was just downstream, right? Uh, as I was got a bit close to it, I slipped and fell in. And as I fell into the water, uh, at first, I was able to swim really hard to the shore, but back or back to like the, the rock ledge, but it was a very hard swim. I had to swim really, really hard against the current. And my friend was there trying to pull me out. And just as I got his hand, his, his, hand, his uh, foot also slipped and we both were in. And I kind of at that moment, it was like, a, while he was still on land, I kind of had this... Um, uh, this belief I, I was going to get out because, you know, my friend is there so he can get me out. And, but now he's in the water with me. We're both in this river. And it's like, uh, it was an instantaneous knowing of this is where I'm going to die. And it was quite laughable, actually. The first response was like, you know, of the, of the million ways you could die, this is a really strange way to die, you know, like, and, um, and I had no, I had no need to continue living. I know a lot of people who, when they get into the near-death experience, right away they're they're fighting it, and that you know I can't die, I have to live. I, I you know I've got I've got to do this with my kids. I've got this. They've got something that they feel right away they can't die for. So, and I didn't. I was, just, I'm fine, no problem. I, I'm happy to go now, kind of, you know. And as soon as I made that that um, I came to that understanding that it's it's okay that this I'm going to die and I, I don't need to keep living. Uh, the first thing that happened was my everything I had ever known to be myself was gone. So my mind, my thoughts, my, my feelings, my, uh, my emotions, my memories, my fears, my hopes, it was like it was all gone. And I had realized none of it was me. I had realized every single thing I'd ever classified myself to be was false. It was, it was not, it was not true because here I was in a sort of a conscious aware state and I would call what I was um, accessing, a, I called them bubbles of information or clusters of information because it wasn't thought. It was like a, a, a complete, a complete piece of information would come up be there before your eyes kind of like burst and then disappear. This would keep happening of, of anything I, I was thinking. There was no thought. It was just the bubbles of information, which I knew was um, from the most deepest reality possible, that all these other things were just layers that this these clusters of information were in a sense using to create a form and have an experience in the world. So while that was going on, there was the realization, I'd already kind of come to the realization years ago from experiences that the world wasn't really real. You know, that reality, the world out there was, uh, was kind of like a shadow world or a, a mirage or, a, you know, not solid. But I was very solid still. I was still very real. The re reality, was, reality wasn't, but I was real. Now in, now in the canyon, the realness of myself was pulled away that no, you're, you're, you're the same as the world. You're, there's no difference. There's not, you're, you're, you're equally, you're equally false. And um, 
as that was happening, then I would classify, which a number of people I've talked to over the years with near-death experience to talk about, uh, I call it a download. It was like a, um, the same as if you put a computer stick into a computer and then just move everything off the stick into the computer all at once. That's what happened. It was like I was downloaded with an unbelievable amount of information. And part of my last 15 years has kind of been just going through my files, trying to open things and figure out what actually is in the download. I don't doubt the World's Fair stuff. That was in a download. That that came in a download for some reason. And then eventually the right tumblers clicked and I, and I hooked into it. So that happened next. Um, and this is all happening within microseconds, right? Like I'm moving down the river. I'm now not flat. I'm sort of upright like this. I've sort of been pushed in and I'm upright and I'm just being pushed by the water and I'm not, I'm not, not there's no resistance. There's no nothing. I'm just letting the water take me um, uh, because I have no need to struggle to continue. When I felt the download was completed, I, I was, I had moved like a, a second down the, down the, um, river and I'd look back to my friend he was dog paddling in place I didn't know later I found later he didn't know how to swim but he was able to dog paddle somehow uh, reflexively and stay he was a little uh, less strong part of the river and a thought came well if I don't get out of the river how is he ever going to get out and at that moment uh, I slammed into a boulder my leg hit like a, a, an undersea underwater an under uh, river boulder veered me off a bit to the right um and it just happened that my, my foot touched like uh ground uh foot uh what, what's, what's the bottom of a river called uh, can't uh, think of it, but you know i, what I mean. can't think of it but i, I know what you're yeah the, the, yeah so uh, so i realized that it was much more shallow than i thought and i was able to kind of work really hard swim against the current kind of crawl my way up this sort of uh, slippery bank all the while yelling at my friend, kind of like, it's it's shallow, you can get out here, you can get out. And all my mind was thinking was get out as fast as I can so I can find a, a long tree branch and, and, and get it to him and I can pull him out. But as soon as I got onto the shore, I realized he was crawling out as well. And uh, then we both sat there for about 30 minutes. We didn't say anything. And we just sat and stared at the water. Um, and, and there was absolutely no fear. You know, it's like you, you, you could say, well, you just this is where you fell in. Wouldn't, wouldn't the first thought be get, get away from it and, you know, go sit somewhere else first. But our like, fear now is gone. Fear just didn't exist. And after the 30 minutes of sitting, we decided to share our experiences. And we talked for about an hour each because our two or three second experience gave us an hour of detail. And our experiences were very similar. There was there was tremendous similar he he as well accepted his death and he had something similar happen to him and uh we we kind of were brothers after that because we kind of went through very similar experiences for a long while so it was very nice to have somebody to go and meet for a coffee and you could share what was going on and and he knew because it was going on with him too um so that that's the that's the the overview of the experience if i had to short term it then so you say well, what was it like after uh, the first about four or five months was this place of no fear, like actually no fe fear, none, zero for anything. You couldn't, there was nothing to be afraid of now. You know, you just seen, you just seen that you don't actually die, that the me I thought of as me 
on death is just it's just gonna it's just gonna run away like a scared mouse it's just gonna disappear when it's time time to go all the things that you trust that i trusted my like my thoughts and my feelings and my memories that they were gonna help me somehow when i really needed them they were gone and i realized well they, they're shit and so you have no fear there was also this false clarity now i don't want to say it's false because the clarity on one hand was very was also i mean i could see through people i could know things instantaneously i could but it was false because if you think of, uh, if you're looking at your screen now, that's the totality, that's the holographic totality, okay? And when you have an experience like this, which is a, it's touching oneness or touching the other side, I, I kind of walk the other side of Plato's cave, out of Plato's cave, you kind of see it all. You, you do get the view of complete unity, but you get fooled because actually what I, but my completeness was like a piece of the screen. So a piece of the screen that the light was shone on that and that was total and complete and and i'm 100 percent uh sure of it but the rest of the screen appears like it was complete i mean you did get a glimpse of it but it wasn't it wasn't the light wasn't fully on it and it, it, it will fool you and i think i've seen now a lot of people go through a similar experience that i did which is now you think you know everything and you really don't. You know a few things really, really well, and you know have a few uh, things that are now ideas that you can touch on and talk about. And that got me into trouble because I was starting to share things that I thought were completely had to be correct. I mean, I've seen everything now, right? I, I, but I haven't. And so sometimes I would be talking and be very clear of the part that I had fully seen. The other times it was going to become distorted. And it's one of the reasons I stopped all of this. I saw I was doing lectures and all sorts of things for a while. And I just stopped for about six or seven years because I realized finally that uh, a lot of what I was doing and saying was distorted. And it's taken a number of years to kind of feel that now I feel pretty comfortable in a place of when I talk about things, I know what I can talk about. That is, I feel pretty genuine about and I know what things I can share and say yeah I'm not really sure about this I mean I kind of had this experience I had that experience but you know I'm not really sure I'm sharing it with you but don't 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 bet on what I'm saying kind of thing and, and it's really helped a lot to know how to talk over time but it's been quite a journey since that um, time in the canyon that, that, that's a that's a amazing story and the first thing you said when you started telling me about your story was you noticed before you had your your death experience you um you noticed that you had parallel versions of yourself and this is something that i wanted to touch with you because this makes me question our reality like i too have thought that there are parallel versions of myself and i've seen it in dreams because i'll be dreaming for eight hours and in that eight hours i can have a dream where it feels like i've lived a week I'll have had sex with a girl. I'm not trying to get graphic. I'm just telling you everything that goes on. You know, I'm living a life. Like I could have kids. I mean, there's like right. things are going on. And then I heard you say in a podcast, how do you know you're not in a dream right now? And that made me think, are we in a dream inside of a dream? And I know that sounds crazy, but this is what I'm trying to unpack about the nature of our reality. What do we really know? You know what I mean? Right. right. We, we've, we've been taught that this is real and serious and important and uh, really going on and has consequences, but that's all, that's all hearsay by supposed authority figures. We haven't, or almost nobody has found ways to test it for themselves. And if you take that, the, the two concepts, the two parts of the dream that you talked about. So one side of it is 
Right. When you're in a dream and you're having an experience and the monster chases you, you get scared and you run. You, you know, the you in the dream, the monster's chasing you. When, when somebody brings fresh baked bread out and you smell it, wow, I want to have some bread. You know, it's, it's, it's all very real. But when you wake up, yeah. Then when you wake up and you go, oh, that was just a dream. The monster wasn't chasing me. There was no bread. It was just, it was just a dream. So the, the point, the question is, well, and then how do you know you're not dreaming now? Because the exact same experience with the bread coming out of your oven is exactly the same as the one you just had in the dream that you were sure was real when you were having it until you woke up in your bed and could classify it as something different. Right now, we're not, we're still in the dream, you might say. And so, so that's one side of it, having to, having to ask these questions. Are you in a dream or not? And there's, there are ways to test it. And there's certain, one of the ways to test it is, is becoming in the real dreams that you're having, becoming more lucid so that you're able to not be overcome by the dream experience and be more of a researcher and a tester then of the dream while you're, while you're in it so that you bring that back into this realm and become more of a tester then of things you wouldn't normally, you would normally just not pay attention to all of a sudden, wait a minute, stop. Why is that rabbit on the street? you know, or whatever, and you're, and you're doing, you're sort of switching the two. So that's one part. The second part was, yes, this idea of when you're talking about the other lives that you're experiencing in your dreams, I think that's very true. I think part of what happens in our dreams is many of these million lives begin to cross over, because I don't know about you, but I have certain dreams that are quite similar. Um, uh, for example, I have one where I, I'm constantly over at David Letterman's house, um, and we're just we're just friends hanging out and we're just doing things and we're talking about something and he's talking about the next show he's got to do. And, you know, I'd like to come on again, maybe in a month. And, uh, and when I get up from these, these are, these, these are all very real. Yeah. These are all very real to me. They're not just like a dream. They're very real. And, um, and if I talk about it now, I, I can envision all of this stuff really clearly. Like I've never, of course, been to Dave Letterman's house in this life, but I would assume that when, when 2001, 2002, it looked like what I was, was describing now of course as a comedian if i had chosen a little different path and my life had gone a little bit differently that could have been a very true reality for me so i think a lot of the things that happen in or not a lot some of the things that happen in the dreams are you know experiences of our subconscious and learning sometimes it's moving to other dimensions and other planes and other realms of reality sometimes it's these worlds crossing and and i think when you get these dreams where you wake up from and it feels unbelievably like a real experience you really did i know i'm rambling a bit but sometimes i would get up from a dream or i should say sometimes i would i would be later in the day and i'd have a memory and i couldn't tell did that happen in my real life or was that just in my dream and i i wasn't i couldn't be sure yeah and, that and happened I, too. yeah it's like i how did, i think i know this person and i had this experience with them but then i met them that day and they don't know me like no no I know I've met this person. I've had these experiences with them. They have to know me. And then once I'd had this death experience and realized the parallel realities of me and, and whatnot, that, oh, obviously in a parallel reality, I did know this person. I did have those experiences. And it kind of, it's, a, it's called bleed through. It bled through into this consciousness. Uh, and I couldn't tell the difference. So do you think that we're pure consciousness and consciousness is just an energy or do you think this is like a simulation or like, a, uh, like, like Michael Talbot says, the holographic universe? Like I never read the book, but I, I, I've heard of it and I've, 
you know, I've heard people talk about it and it, and I know the whole simulation theory and, you know, the Mandela effect and all that. Um, you know, it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I can't be sure. I, I you know, it, it's, it could be 50-50 for me. You know, like, I, you know, I, I could say things are very real and it seems like things are real, but then, you know, um, I, I've watched this video where they're talking about the way the, the brain works and it sends information to your ocular input. So you perceive holograms as reality. And this guy, Gerald Clark, was breaking it down. And, it, and it, it was amazing, like the way he was talking about it. But then it would trip me out. It made me freaked out. I was like, wow, is, are these like, is my computer really a hologram? And what does that say about the nature of reality? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, first of all, if you haven't read the book, Holographic Universe, you should. It's, it's very well done. It's a very well presented document, actually. Um, you know, I mean, if you're talking about consciousness, um, consciousness just is, right? Consciousness is totally aware, non-local, uh, has no material form. So consciousness is, and it's not just it's not just an awareness. Like people get fooled because they think oh, I'm doing a spiritual exercise, and I'm, I'm aware now, or I'm, I'm mindful, I, I'm, I'm in the now. So I, I've you know I've got consciousness. No, you've got you've got a, a bodily awareness. You're you're choosing now to be much more focused on your senses and your environment as to what's going on. Awareness is something many levels beyond that. Consciousness is many levels beyond that. And it's, it kind of just is. Now, the reality we experience, the things that we think of as solid and real, of course, once you do the, the exercises and find out it's not solid and real, um, the story I like to tell often which was i'm sure i told on sam's one as well which was in the in the midst where i was really doing my most testing of of reality where i was doing the hardest of my exercises and reality was breaking um i was at my girlfriend's house and i was looking we were watching television or something and i know i said oh your sister's coming over uh she's what do you mean well she's just she just got out of her car she's walking upstairs and when the knock, the knock, the door happened and came in and, you know, hi, nice to see you. And she walked over and said, how did you know my sister was coming over? Well, I saw her just walk up to, howdy, that's a wall. And I realized that for me, until she said it, the wall hadn't been existing. I was just looking directly outside. Like I was seeing the car, her drive up in the car, seeing her get out, seeing her walk, walk over, like literally the wall was just not there. And so when you start having a lot of these experiences, you start to recognize that well, if reality is at least not solid, then what is it, right? Like, what what is it? it, it it's uh, I, I've been moving to more of a of a yeah simulation theory, but I don't want I don't want that to the, I hate the word because then it already begins to make it think like it's some sort of computer that's generating it, and there's these people somewhere that are you know punching keys, and that's how they're making it happen. Like in the movie The Thirteenth Floor or The Matrix, or I don't know. And, and it's just a word that I'm using, right? It's not. Yeah. It, it it's it, it's not how I would describe. It's just it's just a way of talking. But it seems like our reality was in some way consciously created by someone or something else, uh, not created for our benefit, like we like to think. Not created as some sort of school or place of learning to make us somehow wiser and better, like religion wants to try to tell you, it seems more like it's made for some type of experiment. 
yeah. why we are in this, it's hard to know, but it seems like, um, you know, and it's not just like a video game either that someone's just having entertainment value. It seems like what goes on here is monitored and, and recorded for some reason, like I say, as, as an experiment would be. That's just the theory that I'm having based on numerous experiences and conversations and, and looks at, at what's going on here. But um, the almost the feeling is that, I mean, I mean as soon as you were, use the word simulation, a simulation has to be simulated from something. Like you have something that is real that you base the simulation on. So if that theory is correct, then there is sort of a, what you might call a real world, you might say, of which ours is based on uh, and which we are fooled in thinking is the real world, but there's a real world out somewhere else. Who or why or what put us in here? That's hard to say what the exact reasons are, but that, that seems to be quite possible. And that would make sense why there would be a million of each of us. I mean, if you're looking to get data, you know, if you're looking to have experiences and data from your, your uh, creations, well, you wouldn't want to have just one where there's only one series of lies, one series of choices. You can only get one set of data. That makes no sense. You'd want to have, of course, 10, you'd run 10 million simulations with 10 million possibilities with 10 million different things going on. So you have 10 million different pieces of data that you can pull together and get whatever it is you run the data for. So that, just from just that alone, as soon as you begin to feel, yes, I think there really are parallel universes and, and multiple me's, and it almost lends into a type of simulation because otherwise, why would you need 10 million? Why would you need the parallel realities if, if it really was the way religion tries to tell you it is? Um, so I'd lean more to, yes, some type of, of experiment as being what this is. Almost like consciousness experiencing itself, like people say. But I wanted to tell you something. Something interesting happened, and it's really simplistic. But it it it, it kind of. I'm I'm sure this is not just like a, a mistake on my part. Uh, okay, I'll explain. Like before we had our interview sure. today, I was right typing up questions I was going to ask you because I had this plan. Okay. But I was listening to songs on Spotify, and I ran into these songs. It said my top songs from 2019. Well, I have two playlists that I listen to like constantly and I always had these songs in there well these songs you could almost say like they were sending as I was listening to them that I had found them and I hadn't listened to them in almost two years but as I was listening they were sending signals in my brain they were sending tingle sensations like they were making me feel good and I realized that these songs were in these playlists before and I didn't take them out so it makes me feel like they, they like they, they were in the, the they were they were present for me to listen to to shape the way I felt at a certain time and that made me feel good about my life and that made me be able to manifest things better but now it seems like they were taken out of the playlist like it was a bleed through in the matrix because like and I, I hate to say the word matrix because I know that sounds cliche but it seems like something happened where they weren't there anymore and I wasn't getting that good feeling from them. And, and, and I don't, honestly don't think it was just me not revisiting them. I mean, they were from 2019, but like I said, like I keep them all in the same playlist. So they would have been there. It would have been like somebody would have had to go in there and manually take them out. And what's weird is like, they, like I said, they were all songs that made me shape the way I am. Like, and I, and I, and I don't mean to give music that much credit, but I, I do like music a lot and it makes me feel really good. So 
yeah, they, they, they kind of shaped the way I felt. So it almost felt like a part of my personality was removed. And it was like, they were saying like, well, let's see how this, this part of it reacts without this. You know what I mean? Isn't that weird? Hmm. <laughs> Not much sounds weird anymore to me. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. You know, um, of course, music is sound and vibration. And our world, when you start breaking it down to its core components, right? It's just mathematics, geometry, sound, vibration. Um, and that's, that's where we really start to get fooled. We, we look out, I look and I see table or chair or lamp, but that's just a manifested, or you might say, that's just my senses. That's just my um, control package, putting together energetic, the energetic filaments or the energetic light or the energetic waves that are there, uh, putting it into a solid form that I can sense. But just because I see table or chair or light does not mean that's what's there or does not mean that's not all that's there or doesn't mean what has to be there. It's just the way I've learned how to manu manufacture reality. And I think that's one of the things we have to, that I think Castaneda said, re put, put together really, really good in his books is that the reality we experience is, is a reality we've learned to experience, that it's not really what's out there. It's what we've, we as a group have learned to experience, that you and I were both trained to be able to experience table and chair and television and tree and bird almost the same way. And while we will all, of course, see it slightly different, we will have different experiences, different kinds of things. We both, we both wouldn't argue a tree outside. You know, one might say, I think it's a pine tree. I think it's a spruce tree. You know, oh, well, you know, we have an argument about what type of tree it is, but we're not going to, no, not one of us can say, well, it's not a tree. It's, you know, but to Castaneda, he's saying that there's millions of these potential fibers of light, millions of potential energies in that space. And we have learned what he called skimming to skim off, you know, 975,000 of them and take this small, tiny amount, this small little band of experience where we stay in all the time. We, we, we keep ourselves tuned to the same radio dial. Um, and if you stop being on the radio dial, you start being called crazy. And the world either tries to get rid of, rid of you or tries to get you quickly into therapy and, and, and whatever to bring you back to the radio station like everybody else. Um, that's why young children are still so fabulous because they haven't been trained yet. A two or three-year-old child who's still just learning to talk has not been tuned to a radio dial yet. They've got endless possibilities. You know, they still, the imaginary friend that the child is talking to is not probably an imaginary friend. It's a real thing that they are experiencing on a different radio channel, a different, a different layer of reality that they haven't been told yet they can't experience. Yeah. So yeah. they, they still have this freedom to experience more until mom and dad and parents and whatever else are telling them you're wrong. That's not there. Stop thinking like that. Punishing the child, punishing the child, making it feel bad until it stops uh, doing uh, that and doing. It, it, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And they have past life memories sometimes too. You, you hear yeah. those, uh, those kids that have reincarnation memories. It's amazing. And I would just like to get your opinion because like, you're, you're a very high knowledge person. Like, what are your thoughts on like what the simplest thing of like a, a ghost or a spirit is? Do you think that's like an essence of ourselves, like experiencing like trapped here or, or a, an old tape replaying itself over and over again? You know, you hear that a lot. I mean, like, 
I, yeah. Uh, I've, I've, yeah, and I've heard a few different things. I've bumped into a few of them in my day. I think they're different things. Uh, sometimes they are, yeah, some kind of energy that's been um, uh, locked into a location for some reason. Trauma seems to do it more than anything else, but it can also be, um, sometimes the, the energy gets locked there because it was the happiest place of someone's life. And for some reason, things got so bad for them as life went on, again, through, again, the trauma, but the trauma elsewhere, and the consciousness tries to return to the place where it was happy. Uh, another one that, that tends to happen when it comes to ghostly activity is uh, mental projections. Uh, particularly mental projections of teenage girls, younger, younger age women who have a, a very high energy that most people don't seem to recognize. And um, younger attractive women uh, are always classified as how hot they are. Hot being a level of energy, actually. And this energetic structure in them, you know, when you, when you see uh, young girls from the 1950s and 60s screaming to whether it's Elvis or, or uh, the Beatles or whoever, right? It's this, it's, this un, it's this now flowing energy in them as they've kind of moved into their uh, starting of the child rearing potential cycle. This energy is so high and, and the, because there have been no initiations anymore, young girls and young boys don't get initiated into understanding themselves and their body and their masculinity and their femininity and the energies. It, it, goes, it goes haywire. And if it's going haywire and it's got no outlet, it can often then be projected into the place that they live and become um, like an external manifested yeah, experience. So I know a couple of times when I've, when I've had people ask me about this, oh, I've, I've got this going on in my house or my friend's got this going on. First, uh, do you have a teenage daughter living there? Is, there? is there a teenage girl living there? If the answer is yes, then I would, start, I would look into it that way first and see if it's, because uh, so many times they're linked. If it's no, then if it, no, there's no one living like that. Okay, then you, it's probably one of these other things. But I try to, I would try to knock that one off the list first. Um, this sort of, and of course, I'm not saying only girls, right? So it can be because boys' hormones are going crazy as well. Just usually, boys have so many tend to throw it into an outlet, whether it's you know, sports, whether it's motorcycles, whether it's you know, being a bully, whether it's whatever. But for some 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 boys just become, you know, they, they become introverted and quiet and shy. And, and they can also have the same kind of projection with this energy when it, it's coming and there's nowhere for it to go. It, it can also manifest as sort of these, uh, these, but that would, so I would say that might be 30% of them, 40, 50%. That might be, yeah, this, this sort of what I would call this um, energy that, like you say, it's kind of living a loop. It's kind of living a memory. Then there's be 10% that I don't have, I don't have any idea what the hell it is. <laughs> I, that, we, I know I, I, I get the same, a lot of people have, you know, there's, but what I found interesting in what you just said was like, you said that, that, that we, we, they call women hot be, and, and, uh, that's because of the energy that they're giving off from their mm. um, their right. recreation. And, and I, I think about that because I, I find a lot of women in their twenties, you know, in their early thirties, I'm, I'm only 41. So that's all right for me. You know what I mean? But I mean, like, I still find that and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm single right now. So like, I find that still attractive. And I wonder if that's because of like, um, we have this innate desire to, even though I don't want to have kids, I have no desire to have kids, but is that like my, 
gen genetic clock saying you want to have kids, you want to have kids, you want to have kids to try to procreate, even though I have no yeah. desire to have kids. But right, that's part of it. That's her that, 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 You know, that's part of it. Of course, the the act the act of being with somebody on various levels is is pleasurable and has a lot of positive um, experiences for the body. So of course, there's you know. People are drawn to drawn to that, um, but a lot of it is just yeah instinct and genetics, and it just um, um, and since of course some of it becomes then a lot of people be, uh, over time begin to um, create their identity around it, right? That they they they're valuing themselves positively or negatively based on what happens in these fields. That if they're having a lot of relationships and dates, they they're they're, they're they're doing well, they're good, they're, they, you know, and if they're not, then there's something wrong with the, well, something wrong with me and I have to fix this. And so there's so many subtle reasons as to what the draw actually is. It's hard to know exactly. Um, but that, that's why uh, one of Richard Rose's, uh, who was a, a spiritual teacher who died about 15 years ago, one of his key elements, particularly for the men in his group was to stay away from women while you're kind of in your in your 20s when you're in your highest level of possible spiritual search uh with energy you need the energy and that moving into these fields moving sort of chasing girls will be taking so much of your energy and you don't have time you you can't waste that energy if you want to now i'm not saying that's correct because that that's not i don't believe that's true in all instances but there's there's certainly something to it in that what you're kind of doing is is uh, nature's pushing you in one direction. Nature's saying, because really, I mean, if we break this down, if we start breaking this reality down, honestly, reality wants us to have children. That's the number yeah. one thing it wants us to do. It wants us to have children so that they can be trained to be the next round of slaves and they can go on and, and become, energetic yeah, become energetic slaves, indoctrinated to this realm and then have children of their own and indoctrinate and slave them. And this endless wheel of just, you know, and and um, no one is sitting and it really has, or very rarely do people sit back and say, does the, should we still be having, should we still have children? Like, what is the real, what is the actual benefit of having more humans, really? Yeah. Like we haven't actually, like the average person has not really sat down long enough to say, and just honestly think about it. It's just taken as a granted. Oh yeah, there's more of us. I need to continue my genes. I need to have this. I need to have the family name continue. Or what would happen if what would happen if all the if there were no humans anymore? The, the, you know, uh, on another level, I mean, I got one. Uh, if you. there were no if there were no humans, I think the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom would probably be quite happy. Yeah, and I got one for you. I just thought about this. I'm wondering, am I my great grandfather's energy? Like, because if you think about it, are we just a recreation? Because I, in pictures, I look like my grandfather a lot, and 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 I know that's similar. We all look like our our fathers and grandfathers and stuff. But I look exactly like him, and mm. it makes me think: Are our bodies just uh, are, are, are like if I had a son and then he has a son, is that just my next vessel that I'll eventually reincarnate into one day? Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's it's, it's possible. It, it is. It's possible. Um, certainly, I, I myself don't have children either. And it was a conscious decision of mine years ago because I started to realize that pathology is passed on generation to generation. So um, my, my great-grandparents were, you know, 
messy individuals and my my parents became messy individuals i became a messy person uh, and i knew if i had a child the the likelihood they were going to come quite messy as well because i can only teach particularly when it comes to parenting you tend to teach no matter how bad your parents were that's that's the only parenting you got that's what you learned and you're more you're most likely in a time of real stress to just act out that parenting again with your kids so in a sense you're just passing the pathology on to the next generation and i i had said at least for myself unless i could feel 100 certain that i wouldn't pass on any of my own personal garbage to my kids that they could if i was going to have kids that they would be energetically as clean as possible so that they could just live their own life without my and my father's and my grandfather's and whatever, you know, like the energy and, and garbage moving into them, my, my answer was going to be no, because I could see quite clearly how it just gets passed generation to generation to generation. And, and I shared and, yeah. the same thing with you. I, I, I made the same conscious decision and in mine was because of just like simple mental health struggles, you know what I mean? And I, yeah. I don't have serious ones, but like I started to notice this pattern too, like, and I swear to God on my life, I made the same exact decision. Like, I, I don't know why I said I swear to God. We don't even know if there's a God, but I'm just saying it's so interesting that we we both made that same. I felt the same way because like, I was like, I don't want my kid to come up in this world dealing with problems, like uh, whether it's going to be a financial struggle or whether it's going to be this or that. I mean, like, I know I started thinking, there were times in my life where I was at the point where I was like, why did my parents bring me into this world? I didn't, I didn't ask for this. You know what I mean? And it was funny because yeah. there was actually a kid. If you, if you look it up on the internet, there was a kid who sued his parents for bringing him into the world and he won. I, I, you have to look it up. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. I know it's, but if you think about it, we did not ask to be brought into this world. So I don't feel like I would want to, I felt like I always thought about that. I, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to put the burden of this life on them because I'm looking at me, I'm 41 years old and I'm looking for the answers to everything in life. And I don't know anything, you know, and the more, and I've interviewed 120, 130 people in a matter of two years. And the further I think I get, um, uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's like, it's it, but I think, feel like I've made a lot of progress today. I feel like we've hit on some really awesome subjects. And, um, yeah, I, I just I, want to take two sides of this for the people listening. So I've also, over the course of my life, met some fantastic parents whose children are getting a tremendous start in life. Right. And so if, if you are on that side of the puzzle, then I think having children can be actually a fantastic experience, not just for you, but for the child as well. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like this is sort of some kind of blanket statement for everybody. It's a very individual no. statement that it's each person has to really look at it themselves honestly and you know, not treating it like you're getting a plant or something. I mean, this is like a human life that you are responsible for shaping. Do you feel that's the right thing for you? We flip it to the other side and we talk about the Cathars. There's a, the Cathars, they chose not to have children for a very specific reason because in their teachings, they felt that all matter is evil. So everything in the material world is made by what they classify as the evil God. And so, they didn't want to create another child because then they felt that was just going to be another soul that was going to get trapped in this realm that was going to have to do a tremendous amount of work to eventually escape like they were escaping. Uh, and they said there were enough children already in the world that needed help that they were going to take their time and help the ones that are already here <coughs> and not create more um, 
more struggle. So I'm just throwing all that information out for people so that they can all make their own, you can all make your own decisions on what is. I, I right totally agree with you. I think, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll back that. I, I agree with you. I, I think it's all depends on, see me, I, like, I'll just say it again. I wasn't in the position where I felt like I wanted to bring somebody in this world because of whatever issues. And I, I don't need to get into that again, but <laughs> right. I, I agree. It can be a positive thing. And, um, but what I wanted to um, get, yeah. get into with that is, do you think there's a way to spiritually, I, I hate to say the word ascend because that sounds really new agey or do you think there's a way to get out of this matrix or spiritually evolve to a point where we don't need to keep reincarnating or I don't know where I'm going with this, but do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And the answer is kind of yes and kind of no. Um, this of course is the, the, the story of Plato's cave, right? And the, and the, and the, the story of being caught in a, in a dream world uh, in, 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 a, in something that's false, something that's in some way trapping you. But at the same point, there's an exit door and you can leave Plato, you can leave the cave. Um, leaving the cave though, will take everything that you need uh, because the cave is unbelievably enticing on so many levels. I did about three or four videos on my channel uh, on Plato's cave. I, <clears throat> I did the first one and it I was overwhelmed that like 15,000 people and I don't know, 500 comments or something. So I better do awesome. I'll try to do another one, try to do another one. And uh, it's, it's probably the book I'm going to write now will be all about the, the metaphor of the cave and the metaphor of leaving. The problem is, is when you start talking the word like ascension, <clears throat> this religious idea that you will perfect yourself or you will somehow transport yeah, generally it's it's, it's this per, it's this idea of perfection that there's something wrong with you and you need to become perfect and you need to do all of this work to um, eventually become this special thing if you're not special enough now you need to become more special um, and as I've come to see from my own experiences and how I've come to understand the cave there is there you might say there's a there's a exit point but you will never leave it you, you won't make it just like in the canyon, everything I thought of as me or myself or anything that could even possibly think of itself as special or unique or that all has to fall away. You have to become, you have to pass through the eye of the needle, right? That, that, that uh, biblical metaphor. So it means the only thing, the, the only thing that's, that only thing that can make it is what you truly are. And once you, once someone has stripped away all the false and I think makes to that point of where they are, then what you've just said will happen. Um, but it's um, potentially a, a lifetime of work. And for one or two people, it happens seemingly by accident, like good fortune just picks them at random in the lottery, you. <laughs> and they've done nothing. And all of a sudden, they, they, they get out. So, um, so I think, in a sense, there, there's an out, but it's not really an out because you are never, you are not getting out but what you are gets out of that, if I can say it in sort of that makes a lot of sense. guru terms. Yeah. That, that's pretty awesome. And can you talk about, I, I took up a lot of your time and I, I, I really appreciate this conversation because it's yeah. been amazing. It, I really learned a lot and, and I think it was a mind blowing discussion, but can you talk for the audience a little bit? Cause it, I would be amiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the world's fairs because, sure. you know, I think it's amazing. Can you talk about just how, how crazy some of these fairs were like, you know how they recreated the uh, Siberian Railroad, the uh, Jerusalem, and 
and and just how big this was and stuff like that well uh yeah so when i when i started getting into the world's fairs when i started bumped into it i bumped first into the columbian exposition in chicago of 1893 and that was 700 acres of massive giant bill so 700 acres um i can't remember what this is in, in imperial term but it's 2.8 square kilometers so it means if you walk 2.8 kilometers and then turn left walk 2.8 kilometers walk left again 2.8 kilometers and then left again so you made a 2.8 kilometer square that's how big the chicago exposition is uh with one of the buildings there was the manufacturer's building it would hold 300,000 people uh the, the buildings were giant beyond beyond enormous with domes and towers and and beautiful fine ornate finishes and you've got lakes and rivers and electric trains and electric walkways and every country in the world had an exhibit every state in the united states had an exhibit uh, there was a yes a giant they were giant midways and I, when i looked into it and and the story claims that all of this was built in 1891 in two years of course with no modern equipment no modern machines uh, there weren't even roads to bring the materials in. All of this stuff was built in two years. And then generally, in Chicago's case, they claim it burned down. But generally, in the case of all these other fairs, uh, they brought in dynamite and blew the things up when it was done. Wow, that's now, so strange. Yeah, like, like, like St. Louis is a really good example. They, built a, they had 1,000 acres for, the, for their World's Fair of 1904. And then as soon as it was over, I mean, literally the day that it ended, uh, ex, uh, explosive experts came in from Chicago to blow it up. Now, that and that's then that's why I had to start studying them because they happened all over the world. Almost every major city in the world had a World's Fair. So not just big cities in the U.S. I mean, you had Milan, you had Paris, you had London, you had uh, Copenhagen, then you go into the Brazil, you go into the Philippines, you go all through Europe, uh, Asia. Everyone has these fairs, and as soon as they're done, they destroy them. And I knew right away the story's insane. That if that really happened, then that, that's giving us an unbelievable story of some giant, something they're hiding in the past. And that's, that's why I began my study. I thought originally it was going to be like two months. I was going to study the Chicago Exposition, write a cute little book, get it out. But it turned out to be eight or nine months. And I had to eventually just stop because... Uh, you know, there comes a point in your research where I've got enough. I'll, I could be doing this for 10 more years. And I had to just stop and, and put the book out uh, and, because they're insane. They're just insane. And, and can you talk about how they, um, they the indoctrination that went on, whether how they did the human zoos and they measured the skull and stuff like that? Yeah, so you've got these areas. So you've got the areas where the big buildings were and the big buildings at the fairs were generally housed with technology. Uh, either technology to show off some new exhibits uh, of the world or loaded with, with art and classic, uh, classic uh, expensive items and artifacts of glassware or whatever. I mean, it, 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 it was just massive. But then there's the area of the Midway that got his name in Chicago. Uh, so every Midway at any fair you've ever been to comes has that its origin. And the midways at these fairs were really strange because yes, they not only had carnival games, not only had bars and restaurants, they had human zoos, which were designed to bring primitives from all over the world, be they Native American Indians that had just been conquered, Zulus from Africa, Aboriginals, and show them in their very savage primitive settings so that people could come and look and see the great advancement that they have over these uh, very stupid primitives. So you have that. 
as a number of the fairs would have these exhibits set up where they would have skulls of the, of the various primitive peoples of the world. And then your skull would be measured and you would see where you fit on the evolutionary scale. Of course, there would be a Victorian nice big uh, skull from England and we would see how close your, your skull fit to, the, to, the, uh, to, to there to, to determine your evolutionary path. Um, another main part of these exhibits were, of these midways, were the historical exhibits. And the historical exhibits were massive. And to me, that was one of the major parts of these fairs was the, almost what I think is the creation of our history. Our history was created and present, was created by a group of people and presented at these fairs as truth. Because it's not just, they, they just weren't putting it as a book that you read they made it as an experience so you felt like like you were talking about these 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 exhibits well that was that was what you're talking about was, was on the known as the pike in st louis so one of the exhibits there is ancient rome now ancient the exhibit of ancient rome had approximately 500 actors that were there to portray gladiators and and uh, various people of ancient Rome. So you would go and see what was supposed to happen in the Colosseum. You would go and see one of the parties. You would go and see the senators in, in talking. You would go and see the Roman Forum in, in, in action. And you would now believe you've really been there. Because it's not just a book. It's not just a lecture. They've given you a living experience of what the history is supposed to be, which, of course, would indoctrinate your mind completely. How would you... How would you uh, dispute not just that you know the smithsonian has put this exhibit up of it they must know what it is and i interacted with, i talked to the gladiators so this must be how it is yeah and these things were, were incredible i mean yeah they talked about jerusalem well the jerusalem at that one they, they built 22 streets and 300 buildings just get that through here 22 streets 300 <laughs> buildings yeah including the stable which Jesus was supposed to be born, the Golden Gate, the Mosque of Omar, uh, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They had 1,000 people that they brought from Jerusalem to act as the various actors and work the exhibits and work the restaurants. That's just one small thing. And yes, they had one for, they had one for Germany. They had one for, for, for medieval Paris. They had one for early, um, you know, they had one for, for uh, the streets of Cairo where you could go to Luxor Temple. They had one for Barcelona, right? They had the, the, railway, the railway for... Um, Russia. They had an Irish village. They had a Chinese village. They had Constantinople. They had the streets of old St. Louis. So you can see that the potential is there when you don't have television, you don't have um, uh, movies yet. You have an, a, a, an amazing indoctrination tool, uh, particularly because the people at these fairs are, are rich, richer elites. You know, the, the, the average person can't pay to go to these they could pay the entrance fee but they couldn't do anything you would they wouldn't go so these are the all the school teachers would be there all the professors would be there all the all the bankers would be there all of the all the people of industry would be there so the very people that would be authority figures to pass on hey this is what i experienced at the fair of history well if you're a child and your your teacher had just been to the the fair and told you what it was like of course, you're going to grow up. The books are going to reconfirm what the what the fair just showed you, and now you become a teacher. And lo and behold, in a generation, the story is ingrained in the whole population. And I think that's what we were seeing at these fairs. And do you think they somehow like uh, blend, blended this into our reality? Be like because um, 
I noticed you talked about, uh, you said that they, uh, around this time, this is when all, our, a lot of our major sports were formed, like football, baseball, hockey, and then also, uh, they also insane asylums were uh, filled up, or, or made, like these really ornate, huge, insane, and these didn't have anything to do with the fairs, but you talked about how in the 1800s in general, they made- Yeah, the, the, yeah, the problem is this is the time period. So once I started studying the time period, which was 1851 to about 1915, this is the time of the technological fairs that I, I'm writing about. Almost everything in our modern world seems to have its origin there. Now they try to give you a history that goes further, but if you really track it back, it became it, 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 in a sort of modern form sometime after 1850, constantly. You've got this time period, particularly in the United States, this exact same period when every single city in the United States gets burned down, goes through a giant fire. And every single city, when you see the photos of it, it looks like it's been, it looks like Dresden in 1944, right? Like the, the building contractors that I went through this with, when they looked at the photos, they said, well, who bombed this city? And this is city, it doesn't matter if it was Boston, Portland, Seattle, Toronto, Calgary, uh, Chicago, it doesn't matter, the, 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 you know, the, the, the stone is melted and, and, and sliced in half and, and then the images are, 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 are shocking. So it almost seems like there's been some kind of almost like, at least in the United States, continent-wide war at this time. All of a sudden, all of this stuff kind of like rises out of the ashes, just magically manifests itself. Um, you have these orphan trains where uh, 50, 100,000 orphans are just being shipped from the East Coast to the West. And it's like, well, where are these kids coming from? Where are their parents? How, how can you just have fifty thousand kids to just you know ship to the west? Wow. It, it, it's like they're they're never they're never explained where these kids actually just show up from. And you see so many photographs of the time period where it's just like kids working in a mine, but maybe they're working in a mine not because oh yeah kids are cheap labor and because there are no adults for some reason they've they've killed off all the adults and kept the kids, which is the way you would if you're going to have a reset. If you are going to if you are going to reset your world, the way to reset it is, of course, with children. Because if you have a group of children, they will believe what they're told, particularly coming out of chaos. And if you give them you give them some stability and you start telling them the story of what to believe, of course they're going to believe you. Yeah. And yeah, then at this time period, at the same time, you can say we have all these insane asylums being built, and they're not just buildings. The things are bigger and more ornate than, than the Medici palaces in Florence, and they're everywhere. Every single place in the world has one of these massive insane asylums, like, I don't know, it could hold like 30,000 people. Well, why are all these people, where are all these insane people coming from in the 1870s and 1880s all of a sudden that the, you need to build all these things for? That would make sense if they were people who still remembered the world before and didn't want to let go of the, didn't want to follow into the new world. So you just put them in these places until either... You, you, you join, you, you decide to join with us or you're just gonna stay here until you die kind of thing. I don't doubt that's what happened. So for me, originally the study of the fairs became really a study of this time period and indicating that it was, a, it was a huge marker point between like there was a line, something happened 1850-ish before and then 1850 to now has been a completely new world, a completely different reality than what was here before and the fairs were like remnants of, of that old world. They were, they were like pieces of, of the old world still left in our, in our new world. Then 2020 hits and we get our crazy experience. And now the word reset is being thrown out on the newspaper. And it's like, now my book is like, holy cow. I think my book is potentially showing in some way, our, potentially our experience now, 150 years ago, 
uh, that something similar may have happened then. And that could maybe give us an idea of what's supposed to be on the table, which means maybe we get a better idea if we can figure that out of what's really going on and what to do about it. If, if there, if we can do anything, I don't know if there's a, I don't know how bad it's going to get. I, I mean, I, I have no, it's going to get bad. Yeah. It's going to have to get bad. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, the majority of the population is, is just doing what they're told unthinkingly. And, yeah. and this has become a really big question. Are you talking about reality? And I mean, I've always known that every bird is not a bird. Every tree is not a tree, right? Some things are either the spirit in its in various forms to give messages. Some things are things hiding themselves as other things. So we don't notice them. So I also knew all the people I met on the street were not people. But now as I'm watching this last two years play out, I'm starting to wonder how many humans are really here. Because like how many are just what you would call like a non-player character in a video game. They're just here yeah. to, make it, to make it seem populated, to make it seem like the city has 100,000 people. But maybe there's only 10 or 20,000 real people in the city that the other, the other group of the people are not. And bizarrely, one of the guys I was listening to today, uh, Max Eigen was saying, maybe a lot of this is a way of trying to figure out by, by, putting, by actually putting this experience in play, uh, the group in charge is finding out who's human and not, <laughs> that this is a way of figuring out uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who's left out there that's actually human. I, I, I mean, it sounds crazy to some people, but I'm really having to, to wonder now, just because 100,000 people look human and seem to act in, in, in human-ish ways, um, when the chips start getting on the table, they're really actually not. They're behaving in very bizarre robotic behavior. And now, of course, you wonder, well, have they always been having bizarre robotic behavior? I just didn't notice it. Well, I had a girl come on my show and she she talked the same way. She said that we have a lot of NPCs and she thinks she possibly thought she she had some kids that weren't real. So that's that's when you Whoa. you might have a kid that's not real. You know who who is this? My if I might ask. Her, her, she's a great she's a great guest. Her her name is Dr. Kimberly McGeorge. I had to take okay. the interview off my channel, but you can look her up. Um, she does a lot of work with frequency, and she does those orgone uh, generators. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, I think you should have her on your channel. I can even set it up. I can email her. I can you know um. Uh, or at least send me a send me a link to her she said i mean when somebody starts questioning the their own family unit uh that's someone who automatically is interesting to me they're 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 at least they're they're asking really deep questions about their reality that machine she came on my show she scanned my aura and she told me all different kinds of things about me like and uh you know i don't know if some of it's real some of she sits a lot of i you'd have to i had to delete the video because some of it went over youtube's uh do whatever Mm. you know so but she has a great channel her name is dr kimberly mcgeorge i'll send it to you when we get off this uh thanks chat yeah she's awesome i think you should definitely have her on your show or you know, and uh, yeah, but this was great, man. I, I learned so much today and that's what it's all about, you know, and if we can learn to, some way to change our future, then this, this will help so much. Maybe this. Is well, what's interesting is just before we go, I know you want to end this thing, but I just did a video yesterday and I had a talk with a guy named Campbell over at Spiral Up on Friday. It led from that, which was the nature of time. And that most of our time is always focused on the future, trying to fix the future, change the future, alter the future. And maybe we've been trained backwards that maybe we shouldn't focus on the future at all. 
we shouldn't be trying to, we should be off, our focus should be on the past. That literally maybe the future is unchangeable as weird as it sounds, but we can change the past. And so the present that you might not like we're, or, or the moment in five years, in five, let's say, oh, sorry, five, there's a moment in five minutes that you're not going to like, you're not going to try to fix it now. You're going to fix it 20 minutes after when you can change the past. It's this, it was this total twist of possibility. I just want to throw that out there. That if you bump into my videos later after this, uh, this is going to be a topic of discussion now because I think it really hit something. This change of, from if you start changing from focus on the future to focus on the past, I wonder what that'll do. That's amazing. Like, I never even thought about that. That's like, because like time's not linear. If you think about it, maybe, and we can get that into another discussion, but can you tell everybody where to find your YouTube channel, where to find your books, where to find you, if you have a website, all that stuff? Sure. Uh, so far, like you, I still, YouTube is still going uh, for now. Um, Howdy McCoskey Talks. And I guess there's like 120 videos there on various topics. I'm also doing uh, some of the talks are on freevoice.io. Uh, so some things are going, some expanding to a different channel to sort of as a safety um, safety place, just like you're doing <laughs> with your podcast and moving yeah, to other places. Yeah. Uh, if you if you Google my name onto Amazon, you'll find my books there at least, and you can get a, an overview of what they are and then choose to go buy them from whatever bookseller you want if you don't like buying from them. I have a very strange named main website, egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com. Uh, I'm changing to, a, I have another site now called exitfromthecave.com. Eventually everything will move there. There's not much on my website anyway. Um, the YouTube channel is, is the best place to, to start to track me down and, uh, and emails there if you need to get a hold of me. And, and uh, I, yeah, I feel like that helps a lot guess, too because that, that helps further people's cause, the, the, the YouTube channel. You know, I, I know I like when people visit my channel because like, you know, it's just, it, that's where we do a lot of our work right yeah yeah it's where you it's where i've met uh, met uh, i mean i've met a lot of great people through that channel the, the the subscribers and the people who have been commenting on my videos in many cases are better are far better than the video i gave that my video i gave was okay but the comments that come after from very astute very aware very clear people have been like I've uh, been like the icing on the cake to take the video to the next level. So I've been really thankful, actually, for the people that have been a part of, of the journey because they've I've learned as much from them as they may feel they've learned from me. So, And I, I say, actually, I say the same thing to my subscribers. I say, we're doing this. I'm doing this so we can all learn together. And that's why I wanted to have you on my show. And I'm so glad I tracked you down, man. Thank you so much for taking your time out to be on my show. I appreciate that deep down. Thank you. You're you're welcome. And uh, maybe we'll bump into each other and do this again sometime. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Cheers.